0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is composer Jay Wadley. Jay first caught my eye back in mid or late 2019 with his score for the film Adam, and then earlier in 2020 with his really gorgeous piano-driven score for Driveways, which I actually wrote about in one of my monthly recaps. But in this episode we talk about his latest piece of film music which is for Charlie Kaufman's Netflix film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's a really fascinating piece of music because it's almost just one cue that is repeated a few times and stretched out over the length of the film. One frustrating aspect, however, is that it has not been released yet in its entirety. It's an issue that happens sometimes with certain films and certain companies, and I'm hoping that one day it'll come out soon. Now I will say that this episode does contain some spoilers for the film and really I think to appreciate some of the things that Jay discusses, it would be better to have watched the film first. Frankly, if you have the time, I would recommend watching the film, listening, and then watching again because it's a film that is very detail-rich and gives a lot on subsequent viewings. Unfortunately, this is a shorter episode. Jay was under a bit of a time constraint, and it would have been great to have talked longer, but at the end of the day, there's still a lot of great stuff in here. And frankly, I like Jay's work, and I could probably talk with him for hours about it. You can find Jay on all his various social media, where you can find me as well. And if you enjoy this, and you've been enjoying the podcast, please give it a follow give it a rating or review. I always appreciate it, and I always like reading them. And without anything more, sit back, and I hope you enjoy. Jay, I really appreciate you joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well,
1: man. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, yeah, and I'm I'm glad, you know, we've been trying to get this going for a couple months, so I'm glad we finally got it sorted.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And I know you've been telling me you've been just really busy the last few months. What are some of the projects you've been working on?
1: Besides all the craziness that happened during pandemic and just trying to get through whatever, you know, 2020 has been, we've been busy with the typical like found objects stuff with my company, my music production company. But I personally have been working on a few different projects, like an experimental documentary called Light, Darkness, Light, a couple like ballet pieces. And I'm doing the second season of Modern Love on Amazon and i'm doing the series finale of of hulu's into the dark with my good friend emma who's directing that one who also directed the wind i'm not sure if you saw that one
0: i haven't seen it i think i wrote about it like because that came out i think in mid-2019 and i can't remember who did i can't remember if it was brian mccomber or someone else
1: it was uh, a guy from a band a country oh like love it Ben Lovett oh yeah yeah Ben Lovett that's right
0: they have like no similarities I don't think I just for whatever reason get them mixed up sometimes but that's great to hear especially like mid-pandemic or maybe we're at the tail end now that you have so much on your plate you mentioned the ballet so that obviously lets us segue right into I'm thinking of ending things which obviously has a big ballet at the end but it's also kind of stylistically some of the music that you chose to do for it. How did that choice come about?
1: Yeah, I mean, largely just because it kind of it, it falls in line with the sort of conceptual approach of the film itself in that, like, the character is sort of this sad, lonely or old man who's kind of imagining an alternative life path that he would have taken if he had had this girlfriend and, you know, kind of all these things. And she's just a figment of his imagination as is all of these other sort of things in his life and accomplishments and, and things like it references film and it references art and literature and all these other things and kind of takes those concepts from other artists and uses them as if he had created them because he's sort of this person who is unfulfilled and, and, and feels like, you know, he's not living up quite to his own potential. And, and so in, in the dream sequence, in the ballet sequence, it was all sort of in line with that in the concept that, you know, if he's imagining his life playing out in this dramatic ballet, what type of music would he be imagining? And with that same approach, he would be appropriating from ballets that he had heard before. And since, you know, we didn't wanna go and just like, use something from one of them. So it was more about like appropriating their style and creating something new, but that would be so stylistically reminiscent of those composers that people wouldn't necessarily know that it wasn't actually them. So it's very heavily influenced by Debussy and Ravel and Stravinsky. And so that was kind of the approach to that I was trying to take on that.
0: It's interesting because I think, and you know, I'll admit it right now, I don't really go to the ballet. I'm familiar with some of the big ones, but that's it. And so you hear a lot of that, cue throughout the score. Hell, it's it's in the, the trailer. It comes in at the beginning and then it comes in again. On the record player, yeah. Right on the record player. So you get those pieces of it and then it's, I think it's a really fulfilling moment when you're right near the end and it, it comes in full bore for what feels like 10-15 minutes and, and every single piece just comes together. It was a really interesting approach because normally what you're getting in film music is the progression of a theme and you know sometimes it's more subtle sometimes it's not but you know I hesitate to say that that's a a theme for the old man but rather it's I don't know maybe it's the the progression of his imagination or as things unfold to the viewer but it was it was just really interesting to to seeing how to caught me off guard
1: yeah, you know, it, I kind of think of it as as sort of like rumination in a way, because he's kind of fixated on this alternative narrative to his own life and and kind of circling around these ideas. And so this is music that he's sort of imagining playing out his life in a way in the ballet but the entirety of the film is in his in his mind and his part of his imagination. So even the opening sequence that p- does play the love theme from the ballet, like the potida, de the sort of, you know, to the duet dance, it's over an imaginary woman in a fi- a figment of his imagination talking about ending a relationship with him. You know, so it's kind of like it's it's just all of these different elements and things that he's familiar with kind of synthesizing into this very imaginative narrative that doesn't really exist. So I think I think that was partially Charlie's idea to put the ballet up at the top. I didn't think that that was necessarily going to be the way that, it, like, what, what would work there, but I thought it really was, was quite excellent. And they actually ended up cutting that opening sequence to a degree to the way that the ballet progressed. And in the same way that they, they did that with the record sequence, it's kind of this crazy serendipity that it actually, like, that whole scene kind of the structure of that scene actually does reflect the structure of the ballet as well. And so they kind of cut that scene around some of the changes in the ballet uh, in the same way. So there were some things that I had to do to adjust to kind of make it make it fit exactly right. But it was still scored even though it's playing as source. And it's supposed to be this sort of parallel uh, narrative with what's happening on screen in that in that way as well.
0: That's really interesting. So then when when you were scoring those sequences, I mean, were you scoring to film and then after that they, they kind of adjusted it and you sort of reworked it from then?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I wrote the entire ballet uh, before they shot. So, you know, I wrote that purely based on the description of like what was happening over the course of this narrative, right? So over the course of that ballet sequence. So he had script notes, uh, Charlie had script notes about like all the different sequences, what was happening, who was involved and what the sort of intent of those things were. Without any choreograph to work to, I just kind of had to think about how those things would unfold in time, how much time we would need to explore each of those different states and then create a score that was reflective of those. And so, you know, kind of using my imagination on as to how to pace that out musically. And then we didn't really change it much like I think we cut a few bars here and there for things that uh, sequences that were a little bit too long just based on the physical space that we were working in and then other than that we didn't really change anything so that was cool and then by the time they got into the editing room, you know, they already had my ballet in in a mock up form. You know, it wasn't fully recorded yet, but they were able to take that material and then start to drop it in different places and see if it worked. And so that's when they came to that. They had already shot him putting a record on, knowing that they wanted to play the ballet there. But then once we actually tried to, uh, tried it out in those spots, then it started to really come to life. And I, I think that was something that was so cool about. Ah, uh, the process working with them is that we were finding these wonderful, you know, moments along the way. Some were very, very planned because Charlie is very much an intentional filmmaker, but then he's also very open to finding what happens along the process and really embracing those those unexpected moments. You know,
0: that's really interesting. I mean, because so often it's it's really the exact opposite of what you're describing, where. You know, a composer comes in and everything's already shot and they have six weeks to put everything together. Or, you know, sometimes you get the script and you demo a couple concepts, but really there's still that mad four, six, eight weeks at the end. So it's really cool. And I think it it comes across with how complex and deep the, the end ballet really ends up being, that you had that much time to really work on it in development. Yeah, that was, that was great.
1: Which is funny because, you know, I mean, I had very little time on the upfront, right? So it was one of those things where it was actually a mad dash at the very beginning because I had to write the whole, whole ballet in a matter of couple weeks to get to the choreographer so that the choreographer could do the choreography and then get, and casting and rehearsals and all of that stuff to then get to the point where we're actually on set with the full ballet playing over a speaker so that they can dance to it, right? So like, it was it was sort of really fast at the front and then this like long lead time when they're starting to get into the edit or shooting and then getting into the edit and then it was like a a compressed timeline again on the back end. So, it was uh you know, there wasn't like once we shot like the ballet was fixed, you know. There was no there was no changing the timings for what was there cuz we the, the choreography was set and the the everything is set so you can't really there's not much messing around with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's so it's so weird, but I don't know. I I love it, and honestly, with with something from Charlie Kaufman, like I I would never expect to be like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty standard stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's certainly the first time I've ever experienced this. Like most most of my situations, besides just like demoing themes or like exploring a sound world, you know, there's never been up until this point a situation, at least in my film work that I'm aware of that I've actually written something in an entire, in, in an entire uh, way that is finished and then just placed in the movie as part of the movie, which is so unique and cool and absolutely loved it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah I bet. and I imagine part of that too because it's,
0: it really is this big standalone piece. That's got to be part of the reason why you want it actually released as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I definitely want I definitely want to show this to the world and, and, and have it out there. That's up to Netflix whether or not they, they end up doing it. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm really proud of it. And it was definitely a very unique challenge. And so I think it's special for that reason alone, you know, but not up to me.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. And unfortunately, that's, uh, as the composer, you're in the, the collaborative process. And, you know, on a, on a project like that, especially once you get into that scale, your hands are tied but you know i've i've been having my fingers crossed since you know whenever i watched back in october i think so you know let's let's hope
1: you know, they I, I, I did a um I don't know if you saw but I did a uh a piano, two uh two piano version yeah, of the yeah. ballet with a good friend of mine, Timo Andres, and made a little film of him playing it, you know, sort of over overlapping himself for, for the Sundance Labs, like film film music house. And so we released that and we got permission to also put the ballet at least on, on SoundCloud, so um, now, now the ballet can be heard on Soundcloud at least in in its entirety in its original form as a companion piece to this video piece. so
0: so we're we're getting there step by step at least,
1: yes, exactly, exactly.
0: It's funny because that is like such a robust piece, but then most of the film really doesn't have any noticeable music. i mean, there's there's a couple of jingles and pieces from Oklahoma, but you basically go for the the middle hour hour and a half there's just nothing how did you and Charlie come up with that decision
1: one he didn't want like a traditional horror score or something that was sort of just painting everything and kind of explaining what is happening on screen um much more eerie to be for to just leave that stuff pretty pretty dry and alone you know the the the, the main sequences in the middle bit of the film that actually have stuff you know is essentially you get the film within the film, um, the score for the film within the film. That's like the the Robert Zemeckis directed, <laughs> you know, film there. And then, yeah, there's like a, a little bit of score in the house uh, when she like goes down into the basement. But in a way, we're kind of like treating it as like it's kind of like going deeper into his own psyche. Right. And so that space and the way that we approach that was, again, like pretty conceptual in that that entire piece is actually still the ballet. It's still the ballet, but it's it's stretched out and reversed and reverbed and and so it's like it's kind of got this weird sweetness to it but it's also eerie and it's got these other weird textures on on top of it so the the whole concept is is sort of ruminating on these themes and this love theme and and whatever but but kind of like it it gets distorted as as we go through the like different layers of his psyche and awareness of. Hisself self in a way. Interesting,
0: and and yeah, the idea that there's there's the sweetness with a maybe a maybe a horror undertone or a, a menace. It's it's so spot on, especially when she uh, puts on the record player and the love theme starts and the, the harps start, and it feels like what should be this just really lovely romantic moment, and it's not. There's there's that underlying sense of dread and unknown, and it's. I, it's so bizarre to kind of process it because it's you I mean you recognize it as the viewer it's the exact opposite of what you should be feeling or what you kind of expect it's it's funny listening to it again on its own that those feelings just pop right up listening to it without any of the film you don't get to sit back and like oh this is so lovely it's like oh shit like this is not there there's there's something wrong here there's something sinister going on
1: yeah yeah, it definitely it take it has a bit of an arc, you know that that piece in 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 and of itself, you know it doesn't stay in one sort of it, it goes from that potted de to that sort of eerie wedding sequence to the you know the like scene where there's that sort of conflict with the janitor and everything like that. So it it kind of has all of those emotions and everything like embedded into the progression of the score itself. So it doesn't have like a singular tone, you know, like um, like you would necessarily score a scene like that. So so yeah, no, it was a very unique experience trying to find our way through the usage of music in this in this thing and even at the end after the ballet, essentially from the time that the ballet happens to the end of the film it's, it's music. There are these little moments, like the opening, the like the basement, the film within a film, the ride up to the school. There's a little bit of stuff in there, but really not a lot of score. You know, when they leave Tulsi Town, there's a little bit. But then it's essentially the ballet to the end. So it's like 22 minutes or so, where it's just music the entire time. You get the ballet. Then we go out to the car, and he gets, he's in the truck. And then that also is the ballet reversed, and you know, mangled, and all these elements sort of like brought together as if it's like different synapses fire, misfiring in his head as he's like dying of hypothermia. And then we get that sort of hallucinatory like Tulsi town jingle. That's part of the score as well that then becomes part of the fabric as he's like following the pig down the hall and that's backwards and mangled up and stretched out. And like, so it's all these things that are kind of getting pulled in and processed and then become part of his sort of mint, like a very distorted mental state, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where it, where it is literally the audio like representation of what's going on in there. I mean, it's, it's, really fascinating knowing that it's reversed and mashed up and mangled and warped and all that what are your expectations on the viewer and the listener are, are you thinking okay there's going to be a recon- like a conscious recognition
1: or subconscious or you know working
0: on these just deep layers
1: I think that there's a subconscious record like I think some people will dig deeper and they will recognize it. Some people won't even recognize that it's the ballet playing literally on the record, you know what I mean? But if you do if you do pay attention, if you're a person who does dig into these things a little bit more, watches it once, twice, a third time, you start to make those connections and I think that is the thing that is really beautiful about charlie's filmmaking is that there are so many details in its construction that aren't immediately recognizable but on a second third fourth watch you're like oh my god how did i not see this thing before like it's so obvious that this is the way that this is because it's all very very carefully constructed in that way uh with so many different layers and he doesn't feed it to you. He doesn't show you what he's doing. He just does it and and expects that you're going to do the work to figure it out. And so I, you know, I, I felt the same way about the score and doing that, you know, it was like people who dig into it, if they get a chance to listen to it on its own, eventually, they might start to notice it more. Because like, the tonalities are similar, like you'll hear the chords and the ball you'll hear the harp, but it's like, it's not the same way. You'll hear the voice from the Tulsi town jingle, like you'll, rec- you'll make that connection because the timbre is the same and you'll be like, is that what that is? But like being able to hear that detail where, you know, obviously in a theater with like great sound and everything you might hear if you're watching it on a laptop, you're probably not going to hear. But if you get the score and you get to listen to it on its own on headphones, you'll you'll I think that you will like people who pay attention will start to find those details and that those layers and the references as well. Because there's there's also after the the uh, Lonely Room song from Oklahoma. Wait, no, it's before the Lonely Room song in Oklahoma. He kind of gives that big speech that is lifted directly from A Beautiful Mind and the score starts to kind of take a turn into a score that might be reminiscent of Beautiful Mind. It's not actually copying Beautiful Mind, but it's as if he's remembering the score to the Beautiful Mind, but it's not exact. It's inexact, right? So one of the first questions that Charlie brought up to me was like, what is the memory of what does the memory of music sound like? That was one of the first questions he asked me. And, you know, and I was thinking about it. I was like, well, there's this certain rumination, right? Because you remember a certain part of a song. You don't remember the whole song. And if you've only heard it a couple times or you're not a musician, like you remember this certain part. So it's it's kind of like that thing on loop in a way. You're like constantly singing that line, right? You're not singing the entirety of the song every time it comes up. You're thinking about that line. And then also you might not be doing it exactly right. <laughs> You know, like it's kind of it's it's misremembering what is actually there. So to a degree, like that's kind of how the the score for that moment works in a way. Right. It's like he's reciting the beautiful mind speech and imagining this music. But it's not it's not the music, but it's something that's like what he would remember the music being like. (laughs) So it's all very conceptual in that sort of in that sort of way. Yeah,
0: I love that. That's great. Well, and that's definitely one of the things, going back really quick, talking about when you watch it and you start to notice things. I mean, that, that fits right in line. You know, there, there are all sorts of little details, I mean, some major and some very minute, that will change scene to scene. Not necessarily what someone's wearing, but like one accessory will change. And yeah, that is, that is the theme that runs throughout the entire film, is just like the fallibility of memory. It is both really interesting to me and also something that is, as a human, so deeply terrifying because it is it is an inevitability as well. And it's something that you don't want to think about.
1: Yeah, yeah. And nothing is as you remember it. All your positive feelings, all your negative feelings, all of that, none of that really is your reality is only how you perceive it now it's like it doesn't exist in its pure form so i think that's something that's really beautiful and interesting and also yeah terrifying <laughs> about the film and about life in in general and i think he did an amazing job of of sort of manifesting that in a narrative structure like like it's such an interesting and that's why you know that's why i love his films it's like it's such an interesting uh, intellectual challenge and and um really beautiful, artful way of 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 exploring human experience in a really unique conceptual approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's why in some ways it was a, a little surprising, but it's so nice to see a platform like Netflix sharing that because not many people have seen Synecdoche, New York. But then when it's out there and it's pushed and advertised, I imagine a lot of people will dislike it. Candidly, my wife hated that movie, but at least at least it's it's there, and the opportunity to experience is out there
1: a hundred percent and i and i and I totally get that and i think I think liking and appreciating are very different things, yeah, and I think that appreciation can be there for this type of movie if even if it's people not people's really like their type of thing, if they're interested in kind of coming to it as as a bit of a challenge and and as something that is is kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. You know, I think I think so much of our enjoyment and appreciation for things is is expectation. My guess is that there are a lot of people that turn on Netflix and watch this movie with a very particular expectation of of a horror film or of a some type of or or even even people who are familiar with his past work, but directed by Spike Jones or directed by Michelle Gondry, where there's a little bit of a relief from the existential dilemmas that the characters have because of their whimsical filmmaking's approach to things. But when it's like Kaufman directing Kaufman, it is oppressive in a way that like if you don't go into it with the right mindset you're going you might not be able to handle it <laughs> yeah. yeah he he does not give you the
0: the release valve throughout the film to to slightly decompress before you get just oppressed even more
1: yeah and i love it <laughs> 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 see i'm a person like tor- torture me you know like uh, i love it and it's challenging but i that's the type of that's the type of film i love is is something that's a little bit more of a of a challenge for the audience because i like to be an active viewer in a way like you know sure there's always a time for a, a a passive watch and something that's just kind of like there to entertain but i feel like i get there's like some, a, a sense of nourishment and not that it's like in any way comforting like this movie's not comforting it's not going to hold your hand but there's a truth i think there there's some truth and some real life things that it deals with themes that it deals with that can only be dealt with in the or well that are dealt with in such a unique way that i think is important as a as a piece of art yeah
0: and i'm going to i'm going to sound like a prick saying it like this but Sometimes you, you have to go into something and think, is this actually worthwhile to watch? Am I getting anything other than an escape for an hour and a half, two hours? Wait, that's value? Yeah, absolutely. But there are things that you will think about after you turn it off. And sometimes it's for 20 minutes talking about it with whoever you watch it with. Or sometimes it's four months later thinking about the, the impact that it had. Look, I'm, I'm not a complete snob. I love both.
1: <laughs> Same same I love both uh, and I I see value in both and I appreciate both and I think both are very much valid, valid but i I very much enjoy this type of filmmaking so I'm just I feel very you know lucky to have have been a part of it and um, work with a director that I've admired for a, a long time and and such a unique experience and if you told me I was going to have the opportunity to work with him five years ago I would have told you you're insane
0: that's such a cool opportunity when I was listening to driveways in I don't know early 2020 knowing that you were working on I'm thinking of ending things or that you're going to be involved in the film I was like oh man this is such a good year for Jay I mean it's it's massive and it sounds like it's at least to an extent working out like that because you got a hell of a lot going on i'll I'll wrap this up, but I lied earlier. I have one really hard hitting question for you. I know that you're a big Philip Glass fan, so am I. So what's your favorite work of his or some of your favorites?
1: Oh man uh i'm gonna go I'm gonna go with like Einstein on the beach or Mishima, maybe yeah all right
0: i I would say for film music, it's probably Koya ascoty that's one i can I can put it on in the background and just like melt into it for 4 hours. You know, I I really like Akhenaten too, but honestly it's it's like so much good stuff. So, and and it's the the rare time where I'm glad it's like 3 hours long.
1: Right. Yeah, it's like this can fill fill up the void of all the things that are not happening in the world. Yeah, I, I yeah, I was lucky to get to see Einstein on the beach when it was done here in New York um, at BAM a few years back, which was really great. Because my my business partner Trevor Grekas worked with him for six years, and you know we kind of came up through his studio in a way. I, I did some like copy edit work for him back in the day, but um, most of my time was spent like orchestrating for Rufus Wainwright sort of in those in those years because we were both kind of working out of that studio. Like our company was renting that Phillips space as we were kind of getting our, our feet on the ground. And so that's where we would have working sessions with, with directors or, or artists when we were trying to kind of get our, our feet on the ground, so
0: that's that's an awesome opportunity. I'd, I'd I'd love to chat with you and you know with Trevor who's another great young composer too. I'd feel bad because I just want to ask you guys about Philip Glass, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: he'll he'll have I'm sure he'll have some great great stories. Philip came to his wedding. Which was a lot of fun at, at uh, Le Poussin Rouge in New York, like sort of an underground, a new music venue. That was a lot of fun, but yeah, Trevor Trevor spent a lot of time uh, with him over the years, and so he definitely would have some great stories for you. So I definitely recommend chatting with him.
0: <laughs> All right, I will. Um, and you know, it's it's obviously worked well for him. I mean, the 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 Goldfinch I think came out in 2019. I mean, he had, he had a great score for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, he's got Servant that uh, season two just came out and. Uh, Next week he'll be starting in my Shyamalan's new feature, Old. Oh wow. Yeah, so he's got uh, he's got that going on. So that'll be that'll be an exciting one between like now and March or so. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're we're grateful to be keeping busy and and doing things we love and and working with some really great great filmmakers. Like we're 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 very lucky to have had you know the opportunities we've had and and work with the people we had who who've really supported us and and given us some cool opportunities. So.
0: That's awesome. And and obviously, I'm I'm looking forward to this whole slate of what you've got coming out over the next however many months.
1: Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. And,
0: and thanks so much for joining me. I'm glad that you could carve out some time for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, bud. <laughs> All, right. All right, man. See